Hello and welcome to this bonus episode of the EMG Health Podcast. My name is Dr Bridget Scott and today's podcast will explore the treatment landscape and emerging therapies in esophageal cancer. Here we will be discussing treatment strategies for esophageal cancer with a focus on clinical advancements, new treatments and the latest research. Joining me today are two great guests, Dr Geoffrey Koo and Professor Peter Sersima. Jeffrey Koo is a medical oncologist who specialises in the treatment of malignancies of the gastrointestinal tract at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Centre in New York. He is an assistant attending physician and head of the esophagogastric section of the Gastrointestinal Oncology Service, Department of Medicine. His research focuses on the evaluation of novel therapies and combined modality treatments for esophagogastric cancer. He is a member of the Esophagogastric Task Force of the National Cancer Institute and of the Gastrointestinal Non-Colorectal Cancer Committee of the NRG Cooperative Group. Peter Sersima is Professor of Endoscopic Gastrointestinal Oncology and Director of the Endoscopy Centre and Co-Director of the Radveld Technology Centre, Clinical Studies at the Radveld University Medical Centre, Nijmegen, the Netherlands. His clinical interests include premalignant and malignant diseases of the gastrointestinal tract, particularly Barrett's esophagus and esophageal cancer. He specialises in diagnostic and therapeutic endoscopy with a focus on advanced endoscopic imaging, EMR, ESD, and benign and malignant stricture management. Professor Sersima is past president of the Dutch Society of Gastroenterology and member of the Scientific Committee of the Dutch Upper GI Cancer Audit. On an international level, Professor Sersima is past president of the European Society for Diseases of the Esophagus, a member of the governing board of the European Society for Gastrointestinal Endoscopy and editor-in-chief of the journal Endoscopy. The publication of this podcast was funded by Novartis. The views and opinions expressed are those of the speakers and not necessarily those of Novartis. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Jeffrey Koo and Professor Peter Sersima. Thank you. Thanks very much. Happy to be here. <clears throat> On to the first question. What are the current challenges in the diagnosis and treatment of esophageal cancer? Peter, would you like to start us off? Yes, I'm happy to do so. Uh, well, there are quite a few challenges that we have nowadays. One, of, of course, is early detection of esophageal cancer. And of course, when we have a patient detected at an early stage, also the management, endoscopic management of these cancers, uh, in, in, uh, and that will prevent um, this patient to have and to undergo surgery. So that's, that's the first step, early detection and early treatment. Uh, the second one is detection of metastasis in the early stage. So if you give a patient treatment, then uh, we, make, we need to make sure that detect metastasis are, when these are uh, uh, present uh, as early as possible and, and also consider then what to do, uh, what could be the next step in the treatment algorithm. And finally, uh, I think what's also important um, is uh, the selection of patients that can be treated without surgery, but can be treated with a combination of radiation therapy and uh, chemotherapy. Jeffrey, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, I think one of the major challenges, I think, which is um, more specific to the West, is that you know, esophageal cancer is a relatively uncommon cancer. 
Uh, and so for that reason, we don't have standard screening. Um, on the other hand, I mean, I think we have to make a distinction with many countries in East Asia, uh, Korea and Japan, where there actually is screening uh, because because it's, it's a common disease. Um, so I think in the West, you know, because of the lack of screening and because of the rarity, um, we detect the cancer only when, when patients have symptoms. And from the perspective of a medical oncologist, you know, one of the most common symptoms is dysphagia or difficulty swallowing. Uh, unfortunately, by the time patients have dysphagia, you know, they typically have tumors that are locally advanced. Uh, and here in the U.S., at the time of diagnosis, one half of patients actually have metastatic disease. So, I mean, clearly, I think it reinforces the premise of your question uh, that there is a, you know, that there is a huge imperative and need um, for early detection um, in, in patients who are um, uh, either asymptomatic or minimally symptomatic. Um, that actually comes back into separate you know, issue with screening tests. Uh, in general, we consider screening tests only when, you know, when the disease is relatively prevalent. Um, and again, in, in the West, because esophageal cancer is an uncommon disease, you know, the, the, the question, you know, the question remains, how can we target um, patients who are at high risk for developing esophageal cancer, um, you know, with, with, early, um, with early screening and early detection? Well, that's that's indeed one of the uh, challenges uh, to uh, to find these people that have uh, early symptoms and, uh, and and of course an early tumor, and of course there are, there are some symptoms that uh, that could help us there. Uh, people that have a long-standing symptoms of uh, gastroesophageal reflux disease maybe also use PPIs for this. Uh, at the same time, we also have these uh, these patients with uh, ENT tu tumors. Uh, also, these patients uh, when they survive initial treatment also have an increased risk of developing esophageal cancer and then the squamous type of esophageal cancer. So those are the people that we can focus screening on in the Western world. What are the current treatment strategies for esophageal cancer and how do they vary in the first, second and third line settings? Jeffrey? So yes, yeah, so I, I think this question really relates to um, uh, metastatic disease, but I, <clears throat> I would take a, a little bit of a step back. And, and first of all, you know, when we talk about esophageal cancer, uh, there really are two distinct diseases. So there's esophageal squamous cell cancer, uh, which is in the proximal two-thirds of the esophagus, uh, overwhelmingly related to um, smoking and drinking as risk factors. Um, the other um, kind of cancer or the other histology are adenocarcinomas, which are in the distal third uh, and at the GE junction. Um, and in general, we think that that's related to long-standing acid reflux. Um, which causes a pre-malignant condition called Barrett's esophagus. So I think the incidence in Western Europe and the U.S. is really the same, where three-quarters of tumors are now adenocarcinomas, uh, thankfully because you know, people are, are smoking and drinking less. Um, on the other hand, uh, in places in the world where esophageal cancer is endemic, you know, especially East Asia, um, uh, Eastern Europe, um, South America, uh, it's really the squamous cell cancer that, that predominates. So, so all of our treatment strategies um, uh, increasingly dovetail based on whether we're talking about squamous cell cancers or adenocarcinomas. Certainly in the context of localized disease, I mean, we would consider uh, for early stage tumors, and, and you know, Peter would certainly um, be an expert about this, um, techniques such as endomucosal resection uh, or ESD. Um, we would consider surgery alone for low early stage tumors. Uh, for tumors that are more locally advanced, we would incorporate um, typically preoperative strategies, um, either chemotherapy or chemoradiation. Um, but I think as regards the question with regards to first, second, and third line treatment, um, I would say that, you know, there are now data um, 
that support the use of immunotherapy plus chemotherapy combinations in the first-line setting. Uh, and indeed, that's the current FDA approval in, in the U.S. So for both squamous cell cancers and adenocarcinomas, you know, one can now combine um, an immune checkpoint inhibitor, so it, actually either pembrolizumab or nivolumab, um, in combination with a um, fluoropamidine platinum doublet. Um, so that's really the standard of care. Uh, second line setting and third line setting would be other chemotherapy combinations um, for esophageal and GE junction adenocarcinoma. Um, in the second line setting, we would also consider a drug called remisurumab, uh, which is an anti-angiogenic drug, and that's typically given in combination with a chemotherapy drug, paclitaxel. Finally, for um, esophageal and GE junction adenocarcinomas, about 25% of them um, um, have overexpression uh, of the HER2 protein, uh, so for those patients, we would also add um, trastuzumab, which is an antibody that blocks HER2. Uh, um, and, and the current standard of care would be trastuzumab, immunotherapy, and chemotherapy uh, for such HER2-positive tumors. So that would be a, you know, a quick um, you know, uh, overview of the treatment paradigm. Well, I, I fully agree. I mean, that's also, that's also our treatment uh, uh, algorithm that we follow in our center and also in the Western world in, in, in Europe. Uh, and I think um, what is important to mention here is that that of course we now we are now able also to uh, to treat an increasing number of patients with uh, uh, um, uh, endoscopic treatment, uh, which I think is an uh, uh, enormous improvement in the in the care of patients. Uh, at the same time, we also do see now that patients respond fantastic uh, to uh, preoperative uh, uh, chemo radiation therapy, and there are now. Uh, different protocols running uh, in which these patients are being followed up uh, and only are, are operated on when they have signs of, of recurrence or when they have uh, a metastatic disease. Uh, and, uh, and I think that's a an, an fantastic uh, improvement also in the care that not all patients need uh, surgery anymore so that we can rely on treatment with chemotherapy and radiation therapy. Yeah, I, I think that's a great question, and I believe that you know the, the Netherlands is actually leading a study uh, looking at a you know, non-operative management organ preser preservation, um, oh. and and I think you know that potentially will have um, global implications depending on the results. I think you know we all understand that you know an esophagectomy is you know an extremely morbid procedure. Um, you know the stomach is brought up into the into the chest cavity. You know patients do well, but there are permanent lifestyle adaptations. Uh, and certainly, I think, you know, um, any strategy that allows us to uh, avoid or minimize the use of surgery, I think potentially would be, you know, transformative and life-changing for patients. Absolutely. Uh, this, this study that you're mentioning is the, is the SANO trial, and uh, inclusion has been finished now. So we are now in the follow-up phase, and, uh, well, we're looking forward and exciting to see the results. A similar study has also been performed in, in, in France, and the idea is actually to combine the two studies uh, and uh, and see what the, what the combined uh, results will will show uh, after I think now two or three years. Yeah, and, and I mean those results I think really would be eagerly awaited, certainly by you know all of us who treat this disease, but absolutely by patients and the family members as well. Well, the exciting part of this is a, is of course that that uh, that surgery is not no longer needed for all patients, and I think that's uh, that's that's. That, that is very important because of, of the quality of life of patients. We have seen so many patients that are complaining after surgery. Uh, uh, almost 90, 95% of patients do have symptoms uh, also after five years, uh, five years after surgery, 
which is of course uh, tremendous. Yeah, well, I, I think that's a perspective that you know you as a gastroenterologist and me as a medical oncologist will share. But I think our surgical colleagues, you know, certainly await the results of those studies to uh, to make up their minds. I I can imagine yes. Thinking at a, at a different angle, which biomarkers and pathways are important in esophageal cancer? Peter, would you like to answer that one? Yeah, I can start off a little bit, but I'm pretty sure that uh, Jeffrey knows much more about it. Uh, but but in clinical practice, what what we use in uh, when we when we uh, make a decision on treatment of patients, PDL one is of course an important one because it's uh, well part of immunotherapy based treatments and also HER2, uh, which is uh, as we heard already positive in 20 to 25 percent of patients with an adenocarcinoma, is also an important one. And then also we have of course microsatellite uh, instability and uh, and MMR deficiency. Uh, and that's, I think, that those are the main uh, biomarkers that we have uh, currently, and hopefully we will see many more biomarkers uh, appearing in the in the near future. I, I would agree that absolutely currently, in terms of standard of care, those are the um, those are the biomarkers that that we would analyze. Um, uh, again, as discussed, if if tumors are HER2 positive, then you know the addition of trastuzumab um, to immunotherapy and chemotherapy would now be standard. Um, PDL1 is absolutely PDL1 certainly is very critical. Um, you know, in the U.S., uh, the FDA actually approved in a blanket fashion immunotherapy plus chemotherapy for all patients. Um, but all of the phase three studies show that tumors that are PDL1 positive are significantly more likely to benefit. Um, so the NCCN uh, consortium um, has issued guidelines which are actually a little bit distinct, um, and their recommendation really is to consider uh, immunotherapy only for tumors that are that are pd positive um, the last the the, the, the last um, biomarker you know uh, mmr um, uh, mismatch repair protein um, or you know the um, the synonym is uh, microsatellite status uh, that actually has really interesting implications so you know there are now pretty good data sets both from the west as well as from the east um, uh, certainly for ge junction and gastric tumors uh, that tumors that are MMR deficient or microsatellite unstable actually have extremely favorable outcomes with surgery alone. Uh, and, and you know, the, the, this particular meta-analysis, um, which combined four studies, actually suggested that adding chemotherapy is not helpful and potentially is deleterious. So knowing the MMR status, you know, ahead of time is, is extremely critical um, uh, in terms of deciding multidisciplinary treatment. I would note that, you know, MMR deficient esophageal cancer, as such, is extremely uncommon. Um, but but MMR deficient GE junction and gastric cancer, um, well, it occurs actually about seven eight seven to eight percent of the time in the um, in the locally advanced setting. Uh, so it's it's certainly um, something not to be missed uh, because uh, patients could do very well with with surgery alone and be spared um, you know toxicities of, of chemotherapy. True. What is the rationale behind using immunotherapy for esophageal cancer? And what are the main considerations in selecting immunotherapy for patients with this disease? Now, Jeffrey, you've already touched on this. Would you like to expand on that? Uh, exactly. So, I mean, essentially, I mean, the rationale resides on the fact that probably for about five or six years now, there's clear evidence that um, immunotherapy does have activity um, in esophageal GE junction and gastric cancers. And initially there were, you know, regulatory approvals around the world 
in the treatment refractory setting. So these drugs were approved as third-line therapy, uh, and then they've also been approved as second-line therapy. And you know the drug development in, in oncology is relatively straightforward. If something works in the treatment refractory setting, we then begin to look at it in the first-line setting, and then we even begin to look at it in the curative intent setting. So you know the, the latest data would suggest that um, um, adding immunotherapy, which you know actually has relatively modest benefits when given uh, on its own in the treatment refractory setting, when we now add it to you know first-line chemotherapy, uh, we are you know we are making you know more significant impact and and making more significant improvements in in outcomes. Um, um, so so that really is increasingly becoming the global standard of care. It's certainly the standard of care um, in the U.S. at this point. Um, and I think as we talked about, um, PDL one is a biomarker that was established, you know, probably 10, 15 years ago. Um, uh, it's uh, often criticized, but it remains the only biomarker um, to identify patients who are more likely to benefit from immunotherapy. Um, it's, it's certainly by no means definitive, just because a tumor is PDL one positive does not guarantee um, uh, that uh, that uh, that uh, that you know a patient will respond. Um, but at the same time, if it's negative, the likelihood of response is, is quite low. So, so you know, I think many of us in clinical practice, certainly backed up by um, NCCN guidelines, will use by the PDL one status to decide, you know, whether the addition of immunotherapy to chemotherapy is a good option or not. Um, you know, we don't we we don't discuss it a lot, but I mean, immunotherapy, you know, while having less side effects than than chemotherapy, certainly has the potential for very very serious. Um, toxicity and side effects. And certainly one thing that we don't talk about in the U.S. very much is the financial toxicity of these medications. I mean, these, you know, it really are, are medications that are, you know, prohibitively expensive and, and many kind of uh, medium and low tier um, healthcare systems, you know, probably are not affordable. So I think the you know, patient selection ultimately uh, is, is critical uh, really to kind of, you know, maximize our, you know, bang for our buck. Well, I, I fully agree with this, uh, what you say. I mean, we have to be selective, I think, uh, but at least in our multidisciplinary oncology meetings, uh, uh, the, the, one of the first questions is always to the pathologist, what is the, uh, the PDL one status and what is the uh, HER2 status? Uh, and that's then being incorporated in the treatment algorithm. Uh, of course, uh, you only should prescribe these type of drugs when patients are really fit enough uh, to, uh, to have them and also will uh, and it is also important that uh, that it can be expected that there will be a survival uh, benefit for a patient that also affects his or her quality of life. Okay, what emerging molecules are there for esophageal cancer? Jeffrey, would you like to start off that? Yeah, so it actually is a really you know exciting time. Um, you know, in esophageal, I mean, I would lump it as esophageal gastric cancer as a whole. Um, and, and again, focusing more on, you know, uh, lower esophageal GE junction adenocarcinomas, um, there are a couple of really interesting targets. One is um, something called FGFR2. Um, and so there's, a, there's an antibody uh, called bimirituzumab uh, that is actually moving into a phase three evaluation. Uh, there's another interesting antibody. It's called Claudin 18.2. Uh, and that's something that <coughs> forms part of the tight junction um, between cells. That's also overexpressed uh, in a relatively large proportion of um, um, GE junction and gastric adenocarcinomas. There's a drug called zobituximab that binds to that, but it's also undergoing phase three um, evaluation. Um, and then actually beyond that are still a number of other interesting molecules. But 
I think, you know, certainly the hope is that in the next couple of years, um, you know, we may have, you know, other validated targets. Um, and, and actually at that point, then the challenge will be trying to figure out, you know, what the overlap between these targets and potentially HER2 is um, uh, and, and PDL1 status. Uh, and, and we may actually end up having, you know, kind of a smorgasbord or a buffet of different options. And we'll have to kind of pick and choose, you know, the right option for the right patient um, based on patient characteristics, based on biomarker, based, you know, probably on comparison of these different um, uh, these different phase three, phase three studies. I mean, that's still a little bit premature, but but um, it is exciting that, you know, for many, many years, I mean, this really was kind of a you know therapeutic desert. There really were not, um, you know, new options. Uh, but, you know, with um, the development of HER2 therapy and immunotherapy over the last, you know, 10 or 15 years, um, you know, it's, a, it's an exciting time uh, to be an investigator. Uh, and hopefully, you know, these studies will translate into real and concrete benefits for, you know, our patients. Well, that's true. And maybe it's also an exciting time now to be a patient because uh, the, the, let's say, the prognosis of, of being a patient with esophageal cancer has, uh, has improved. And uh, I, I, I agree. Uh, and, and I do expect that in the next few years, we will have many more drugs that will interfere with the process of uh, uh, metastasizing of the tumor, et cetera, et cetera. And that, of course, will, uh, will make the prognosis of this well, still tumor with a high mortality will be much better. And again, I do expect that surgeons uh, uh, will not be as busy as they used to be uh, in, uh, in dealing with these type of patients. Now, looking at the PD-1 inhibitors in a little bit more detail, there are several PD-1 inhibitors currently in development. How do these fit into the clinical picture for esophageal cancer? Jeffrey? Yeah, I mean, I would say that I think in, in general, from a very, um, uh, from a clinical perspective, we really would consider the PD-1 inhibitors to be equivalent. So, you know, for example, in, you know, the, the two currently uh, available drugs in esophageal gastric cancer are pembrolizumab and nivolumab. And in fact, if you look at, you know, if you look at many of the earlier studies, which were in a very similar patient population, you know, the results were completely superimposable, which is consistent with the fact that the mechanisms of action are, are, are very similar. Uh, I, fre I frequently tell patients that, you know, one is Pepsi-Cola and one is Coca-Cola. So, so they, you know, essentially the same thing. Uh, there are certainly newer um, PD-1 inhibitors that are being developed. Actually, a lot of them are, are coming out of, um, are coming out of uh, China. On paper, uh, they may be slightly superior. But I think at the end of the day, from a clinical perspective, um, you know, I don't think it's going to be a, a, a huge incremental benefit. Um, uh, certainly, you know, there is no thought that we should be comparing one versus another. Uh, I don't think we're going to, you know, advance the field in, in, in that regard. Um, I, I would consider all of the PD-1 inhibitors um, as, a, as a kind of single monolithic group. Peter, would you like to respond to that question? No, I fully agree. I, I do think that there will be maybe minor differences uh, like the, 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 the COLA uh, comparison, but at the same time, it is, it is COLA. So, uh, with a slight difference, maybe, but in, in general, there will be no big difference between the different uh, uh, treatments, the, the different uh, drugs that are available inhibiting PDL1. Yeah, I mean, I guess I, I would say that potentially the only difference might actually ultimately be, be cost. Again, certainly in the US, we don't think about cost very much. Um, but I think if you have a drug that has comparable activity, um, you know, that, that is, that is you, know, you know, available at a lower price, that certainly could, could make it uh, attractive. 
but purely from a um, from from perspective of clinical activity, uh, I think that the drugs will be very very similar. Well, maybe that will be a, a more important argument in the, in, in Europe where pricing is uh, is well considered to be more important. Uh, so then, definitely, there would be a choice for the cheaper for the cheaper t- treatment, uh, I guess. Right. Focusing on combination therapy, what does the future look like, and what is the next step? Peter, would you like to start us off? Yeah. Well, as I said, I'm I'm not an oncologist, but I do expect that uh, that in the future that people will be treated with more combina- of combination with combinations of more different drugs uh, that are really focusing on on different. Uh, 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 let's say the receptors that are important in, in tre- for the treatment. I do expect that that will be important. Um, I also do think that there will also, at least for the next, let's say, 10 or 15 years, a place for radi- radiation therapy. Uh, at the same time, I also do believe that the role of surgery will decrease uh, in the next few years, especially when these new drugs are also coming on the market and uh, are, are shown to be all, uh, effective in the treatment. Absolutely agree. So I, I think that there are numerous ways to think about that question. So one is, you know, co- kind of combination multimodality therapy. So, you know, for for many years, for just about a decade now, there's always, you know, the theoretical reasons to think that radiation and immunotherapy, you know, can can mesh well together and that can be additive synergistic benefits. Certainly, there are you know phase three studies looking at that. Um, there are studies, you know, I think as I mentioned, now that we know that you know immunotherapy has activity in the first line metastatic setting. There are studies that are moving it into the locally advanced setting, you know, um, where we're adding it to perioperative chemotherapy, where we're adding it to um, preoperative chemoradiation. Um, to come back to the question about PD-1 inhibitors, I do think that we are at the end of the era of looking at a PD-1 inhibitor alone in combination with anything, whether it's chemo, chemoradiation, surgery. Um, you know, the, the other targets, I mean, there are other immunotherapy targets as well that seem promising, uh, molecules like LAG3, molecules like TIGIT, uh, and, and there are studies that are looking at that in, in esophageal gastric cancer. Um, the, there are promising combinations of immunotherapy um, with uh, VEGF receptor tyrosine kinase inhibitors, and there are phase three studies looking at that. And, you know, I mentioned um, a couple of minutes ago that there are new biomarkers, um, uh, FGFR2, and, and, and Claudin, uh, 18.2. And in fact, there are studies that are combining immunotherapy um, with drugs that target um, those, those, those molecules plus chemotherapy. So, so really, I think we're, we're looking at, you know, multiple combinatorial strategies, um, but I think we really are kind of, you know, moving away from looking at just, you know, PD-1 inhibition alone. Okay, bearing in mind the huge amount of research in this field, are the guidelines keeping up with the changes in the treatment landscape for esophageal cancer? Well, I would say maybe to start off, I would say that the guidelines are are not uh, in keeping up with all these changes, uh, and that because these these changes are, are are moving so so rapidly, that it's almost impossible to incorporate all these developments into uh, guidelines that are up to date. And that was also recognized in the Netherlands. So we now have a system in place where we uh, actually on, on a yearly basis update the guidelines that we follow for the treatment of esophageal and, and gastric cancer uh, and to make sure that that these uh, these guidelines are more up to date than they are now. Uh, we used to have uh, updates of these guidelines every five years. And for oncological guidelines, of course, this is, well, this is dramatic. I mean, then you're always behind. 
So if you have a system that in, in which the guidelines are updated every year, then at least you have more up-to-date information in your guidelines. And that will hopefully also improve the quality of these guidelines and, uh, and will also make it easier for people to follow these guidelines. I actually think that, you know, here in the U.S., I think they're... Um you know, the, the national societies are, are doing an admirable job. So I think I've referred a couple of times to the NCCN guidelines. So NCCN is, you know, National Comprehensive Cancer Network. And it's, a, you know, it's a group of, um, you know, colleagues and experts um, who really try and, you know, go through the data in real time uh, and update the guidelines. Um, so I, I think it's formally updated twice a year. But, you know, when there is a major study, um, they try and do that within several months. And it has in the U.S. and, and probably on a global basis, uh, clear implications because it establishes a standard of care, um, but it actually is helpful or needed for um, insurance payment in the U.S. as well. So, so the um, the NCCN actually has been, you know, kind of at the forefront of uh, trying to figure out um, which are the subset of patients that benefit from immunotherapy plus chemotherapy combinations. Uh, and 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 as I mentioned, the FDA approves these combinations for everyone. Uh, but the NCCN actually has kind of, you know, based on PDL one status, uh, tried to delineate who is more likely to benefit and who is less likely to benefit. So so the um, I but I, I I would agree with Peter that I think you know, uh, you know f- five years you know updating guidelines every five years even on an annual basis uh, potentially really would leave you um, you know with outdated guidelines pretty quickly. Okay, on to our final question. What does the future treatment landscape for esophageal cancer look like? Peter? Well, the future, uh, um, the future of, of esophageal cancer treatment will be uh, hopefully more uh, early stage treatment. So people that, are, that come in at the early stage and will have a curative uh, um, endoscopic resection. Uh, that, that's at least my wish and my hope. And especially uh, because there are now initiatives to, for, for, for doing screening, not only in Asia, but also in, in Europe. For example, in the UK, uh, there's an initiative by Professor Rebecca Fitzgerald. Uh, she is using the cytosponge in, in detecting pa- patients with uh, Barrett's esophagus in order to have them uh, surveyed and make sure that they, when they develop cancer, that's an, at an early stage so that they can be treated uh, at an, uh, uh, endoscopically. Uh, that's, I think, an important one. But I also do expect that uh, there will be more combinations, as uh, Jeffrey also was already mentioning uh, uh, um, before, um, combinations of, of chemotherapy, immunotherapy, uh, maybe all, other targets, uh, treatments against, uh, against other targets. Uh, there will still be a place, of course, for surgery, uh, combination with uh, focused radiation therapy. I think that will be, uh, in, in my perspective, the, the 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 future of treatment for esophageal cancer. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree, and I think you're, you know, that summary question kind of um, goes to the heart of everything we talked about. I think that you know th- there will be, you know, more. I mean, I think in the in, in the there will be more um, endoscopic options for patients with early stage tumors. Uh, there may be a you know organ preservation surgery sparing approach in the locally advanced setting. Um, and I think in the locally advanced and metastatic setting, I think as we, you know, have more information about biomarkers and hopefully have validated drugs to attack them, um, that, that, you know, we may begin to move towards this idea of, of, of personalized medicine. You know, in general, I think the idea of personalized medicine over promises. Um, it's not likely that we're going to have 100 different treatments, but if we have even, you know, 10 different treatments, um, 
versus, you know, the, the one approach that we had, you know, 15, 20, 30 years ago, I think that really would be a, you know, significant step forward. Thank you to Dr. Jeffrey Koo and Professor Peter Sesima for such a great conversation exploring the treatment landscape and emerging therapies in esophageal cancer. Remember to visit our archives for plenty of great podcasts covering many health-related topics. For now, stay safe and stay well, and I hope to have you back again on the EMG Health Podcast very soon. Bye for now. Bye.